Hello, I'm Paul Heaney, VP Editorial Director of R&D World Magazine. I'd like to welcome you to the third episode of the R&D 100 podcast, where we look at the science of innovation and what's new in research. Each episode looks at a past R&D 100 award winner, and we are excited to bring you another one here today. Well, hello there, Paul. Hey, I'm Amy Kelnoskis, R&D World's Senior Editor. Just like Paul said, we're going to be examining yet another R&D 100 winner here today. We've looked at two items in the medical field on our first two episodes. First, the containerized biocontainment system, and then RetroRx, a pair of tools developed for responding to disease outbreaks. Well, Amy, thanks for joining me again. And, you know, this is 2020, so how could we uh, not have started off with a couple of episodes with ties to pandemics? Yeah, well, I don't think there was any way around it, and anything (laughs) less would have been sacrilege, Paul. (laughs) But based on what you shipped to my home here in Oakland, California, I'm thinking that today is going to be super different. (laughs) Uh, Unless, wait, you're simply trying to drive me to drink with another pandemic-oriented discussion? No, no, I, I promise that I'm not. Um, okay, maybe I only half promise that. <laughs> what? Um, we'll get to that fun little bit about the delivery in a little bit. Okay. But I did want to give a quick reminder to our dedicated audience that we are available on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or pretty much wherever you get your podcasts these days. So please, please subscribe. And if you enjoy the podcast, we would really appreciate it if you would share the link to it with uh, all of your colleagues. Maybe uh, even post something on your organization's intranet. Anyway, if you could do that, we would most appreciate it. We sure would. And you know what, Paul? I think I read somewhere, right? So it must be right, that every time someone shares this podcast, a research scientist gets her wings. Does that sound about right? Or am I just messing it up because of the No, I I think that's how that that (laughs) phrase goes. Sounds uh, pretty legitimate. So I'll go with that. Okay sent me a note that we were starting today with a little wooden box in someone's garage or something (laughs) like that. I mean, I'm getting these visions of Hewlett Packard or Apple or actually anyone in my neighborhood or any number of Silicon Valley startups from like the 1970s. (laughs) Like starting in someone's garage, I got you. Well, you are right about the little wooden box, but you are way off on the computer angle as well as the Silicon Valley angle, Amy. Okay, okay. So instead, we are starting down in Texas. Ah, my one time for three years home. (laughs) Yes, well, this was back in the 1980s, and uh, we were starting with a fellow named Ricky Ford. Uh, Ricky's dad was a salesman and always sort of a tinkerer. When Ricky was growing up, his dad had created this little wooden box that he used to, drumroll, improve scotch. Okay, (laughs) Scotch, like like in the alcohol, we're not talking. <laughs> yes, like, yes. Know. Okay, okay. <laughs> so somehow he'd come up with this idea to use a vacuum pump, and this vacuum pump would suck out some of the harsh chemicals you'd find in, you know, let's say lower varieties, lower grade varieties, I guess you'd say, of scotch. Uh-huh. Okay, this sounds a little random. I'm I'm really intrigued. Ricky <laughs> Ford, though. Ricky Ford, did you make that name up? Because honestly, it oh, sounds no. like a great name for an IndyCar racer. <laughs> yes, it totally does. It totally does. Okay, back to this box. This box that improves scotch somehow? Yes, well, it did. Uh, and on the back of the box was a pump. And again, well, like I said, just a very basic, very simple vacuum pump. And you hook that vacuum up to a canister that was fixed to the top of a liquor bottle. 
So you had in essence a totally enclosed system. On the other side of the canister was a tube that communicated with the outside air and went down into the liquor bottle. So when you pulled the vacuum, in essence, what you were doing was pulling air through the liquid and exhausting out the back. Huh. Actually, it's a great description because I've got a visual now. I really okay. do. So this is interesting. Do okay, tell so, more. Yeah, yeah. So by doing that, uh -huh. he created a little vacuum in the headspace and the air stripped out some, you know, more of the volatile organic compounds. And lo and behold, it made your down and dirty distilled spirit of choice a much better product to take a sip of. Hmm. So Ricky told me that it was you know, sort of a novelty around his house for years. People would bring their jugs of booze by and ask his dad to run it through his system. Sort of a, you know, hey, can you clean this up for me thing? So his dad would run it for the friends. And about 20 minutes later, he'd hand them something back that was really much better. I mean, seriously, what kid comes home to their dad and says, can you clean up my booze? Okay, fine. All well, right. Hopefully it was older friends. Hopefully it was older friends, not school-age <laughs> okay. friends. I, I didn't uh, ask, but that's that's my assumption. <laughs> wait, wait. So this vodka I have, the bottles yeah. marked before and after. Is this what was run through this process? When, what, what, what happened? Okay, Amy, yes. Yes, it is. Um, in fact, you know, I was going to wait to the end, but... Maybe in the interest of making the rest of this podcast a little more amusing, um, let's let's just go ahead and try it now. Uh, so they sent us uh, the stuff, and then after that, we'll get back to the story. Well, yay! Okay, <laughs> and you know, I think after a couple of pandemic episodes, I think this is uh, rather appropriate, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so, so for the listeners at home, Presidio sent each of us some samples to try. I'm based in Cleveland and Amy's out in Oakland. So we're doing, we're going to do a live cross country tasting here for you all. Now, Amy, you have a vodka, I believe, and I have mm -hmm. a bourbon. And uh, we're not going to reveal the brand names because we don't want to get any legal problems or violate any non disclosures. Okay. So hush, okay, hush on okay. the brand names. All right. I've been waiting for this. And just so you know, I've got mine in the freezer. So let me grab it. Okay. And, uh, Ricky told me specifically to leave my bourbon at room temperature, and I've got mine okay. right here. Okay. All right. Um, now, did you wash your mouth out with a little bit of room temperature water? I did, Paul. Okay, I did. <laughs> well, that that was my. I'm following the instructions here, and then hopefully you have not eaten any spicy food in the last few hours either. No, I have not. Okay. And yeah, my mouth is all washed out. Okay, so again, what they sent us was a before and an after sample. Now, the before is obviously, I guess we call it the stock alcohol. And then the after is that same batch of alcohol that's gone through the Presido polishing process, which is what we'll get to eventually. Okay. Um, so this isn't from that original wooden box that we started talking about. This is from the refined process, again, that we'll get to. This is the thing that won the R&D 100 award in 2020. So we're jumping the gun a little bit here, but I think that's okay. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, Amy, I need you to get two glasses and put the before in one glass and the after in another. And I'm going to do the same thing here. Okay, just just so you know, I'm it's my Eastern European heritage here, Paul, that makes me the vodka drinker, you know, Lithuanian, pretty close to Russian. So this better be good. All right, all right. Well, I'm not, you know, I'm more of a red wine person, but but I'm yeah, yeah. to try this for science. Okay. Okay, now, let's, okay, I got my uh, little samples here. Okay. So, um, Any instructions? Yeah, so you got the before and one okay. and the after and the other. Now, right. according um, 
to Ricky, when you're drinking distilled spirits back to back, the second one that you taste or the second sip that you taste is always smoother to your palate. So to kind of take that out of the equation, they told us to reverse the order of drinking them. So instead of doing the before and then the after, we're going to reverse them. We'll do the after one first. Okay. And then we're going to drink the before one. Does that make sense? Really clear. Okay. Like my vodka. Yep. So now as far as, you know, tasting instructions, um, we're going to, again, we're going to try the smooth one first and that's the one that they processed. Yeah. So before you take your sip, when you take it in, Ricky said, don't swallow it right down. Let it okay. rest in your palate a little bit. Let it roll around a little bit. And this is because you want to get it coated on the palate so you can gauge a couple of things. Number one, you want to gauge the mouthfeel. So is it silky smooth? Is it dry and astringent? Um, most people prefer something that's, you know, a little softer on the palate versus something that's harder or harsher. Um, so gauge that and then okay. swallow it. And then the second thing that I want you to gauge is the finish. And what Ricky thinks we will find out is that the burn has been moved to the back and the flavors have been moved to the front. Okay. All right. All right. Here we go. Okay. So you're trying the after. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. I let it roll around, coat mm -hmm. it on the palate. Um, well, I can tell you right now, very silky smooth. Mm. Um, and I know a lot of people, even people who drink vodka can, especially people who don't drink vodka, can find it very astringent. Mm -hmm. That was very smooth. Um, yeah. All yeah. Right, all, the all, the all the flavors up front. Definitely. Oh, wow. <laughs> that is, yeah, I concur. That was really smooth. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a little bit of a burn, but it's definitely in the back. Way back. Like way almost, back. Yeah, way back. Almost not there where, um, well, we'll, I'll, we'll see what the, the next one's like, but a lot of times that's where a burn is. So yeah, okay. I'm barely getting a burn. Okay. Now, before we drink the second one, which is the before, you do not wash your mouth out with water again. Okay. All right. Um, now, Ricky said this wasn't going to be a subtle difference. It's something you're going to notice pretty easily. So okay. go ahead and try your before. Okay. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. he's right. He's absolutely right. And this right. is one of my favorite vodkas. Um, burn is all in the back. It's not that it's not smooth. It's it's still smoother than some other ones I've had, but not like the, the one we just had. Not the and, um, one. Yeah. And, and actually not getting a lot of, compared to the, the other one, I'm not getting a lot of flavor up front. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. Okay. How about yours? All right. I'm going to, I'm just about to try here. Oh, wow. Yeah. Like the burn is way up front, like way up front. Like I can't even believe that's the same. Wait, you're getting the burn up front. I got my burn in the back. I got more of a burn in the back. Like I had, yeah, the flavor. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe it's the, yeah, it was, it was definitely, it's the before was spicier, I guess, almost, but not in a good way. Hmm. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. 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 Yeah, no, I get it. I get it. Maybe okay, that's why. Lastly, this is optional. I'm going to try okay. it. Um, he suggested adding an ice cube 
to the after one and then trying it again. Well, I'm going to try the after one. Think of a difference between yours since you had yours in the freezer. Yeah. And temperature. But I'm going to. I'm going to try it again anyway. You know, one for the team here. Yeah. I mean, this is, you know. Science. Of humanity. Yeah. Oh, that is really nice. Did you notice a difference between it being room temperature and with an ice cube? I, I did. I, a slight, I mean, obviously not as big of a difference between the before and the after. Yeah. Huh. But I think just, uh, it's probably diluting it too, even just, you know, a, a couple percent, you know. Right, right. The ice cube melting in there right away, so. Wow, that was um, that was a fun experiment and pretty <laughs> unique. So, you know, while we're drinking here. And we can continue. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I guess we should get back to the story because I really want to know what else happened, like how this even came to be. I mean, so you said that this box had a vacuum pump that helped to strip out the volatile organic compounds. Yeah. And that made a so, so distilled spirit a much more sippable product. I mean, I don't know if that's even a word. Oh, boy. But anyway, I don't think I care. I'm just going to sip, if you don't mind, just a little more while I let you talk. And uh, just tell me, did they patent this or what happened next? <laughs> okay, well, so the box was just something that was, you know, just always around his dad's house. Um, you know, Ricky eventually went out on his own. He became quite successful in the valve business, you know, kind of the oil and gas business. Mm -hmm. And then uh, just... Kind of one random day, many years later, he was visiting his dad, and he thinks this was in the year 2000. So here's Ricky. I was at his house one day, and here this wooden box was sitting up there on a shelf. And I said, what are you going to do with that thing? And he said, no, I'm not going to do anything with it. It was, you know, it was a fun thing. I said, well, it made liquor taste better, but we don't have a clue why. Why don't we go figure out why it made alcohol taste smoother? And that led us on a search to find somebody that could identify down to the parts per million at the time, what it was that was coming out of solution that left a smoother product. Mm -hmm. And we knew that if we could identify that, then we could tie those compounds back to an aroma or a flavor and solve the, 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 the puzzle. Okay, let me stop you here. So they had this thing, this contraption, and they didn't know how it worked, or maybe I should say why it worked. They just knew that it did work. Basically, yeah, and, and we're drinking the results. Uh, okay, that's <laughs> kind of straightforward. And wait, neither of them was an engineer or chemist, I'm assuming. So I feel like you would have told me that already if they were. Your assumption is absolutely correct, Amy. Uh, okay. The thing is like the literal black box that engineers are always talking about. I mean, <laughs> pl please tell me, Paul, for the record, was it actually painted black? Um, Not that I know of, but if it helps you paint the picture better in your mind, then, then just go ahead and, and let's pretend that it is. Okay. With one more sip, I will. No. Okay. I'm to <laughs> totally doing that. All right. Go on. What did they do next? So Ricky found this fellow at Texas A&M named Dr. Benjamin Mosier, who was a PhD chemist. So Ricky asked, Mo asked Mosier if he could figure out how the box worked, and he left it with him at the lab. So a couple weeks later, Mosier called him back to the lab, explaining that he had good news and bad news. Okay, isn't that always the thing? <laughs> it is. So the good news was that 
Moser had figured out the process basically removes volatile compounds. Those are things that give spirits the burn or the edge. So we're talking uh, compounds like methanol, butanol, propanol. Um, those kind of things were coming out in the process. Okay. The bad news was that he also realized that you were losing about 10% of the alcohol when you do this process. So there was no real control to maintain the proof of a spirit. It was exhausting the bad things, leaving the spirit smoother, but it was also exhausting some of the alcohol too. And there really appeared to be no way to control that alcohol loss. Hmm. Well, but it does seem like there should be a way around that. Like you could, I don't know anything about chemistry, but I wish <laughs> I did. You could play with the chemistry, like the process to maximize the one maybe and minimize the other. Well, yeah. I mean, that's what they thought too. Um, but sometimes, you know, this Amy life gets in the way. So in 2001, Ricky's dad passed away very unexpectedly. So he told Mosher to forget about the project. You know, I mean, it had been like a fun little thing for father and son to play with, but now that obviously wasn't possible anymore. Ah, uh, that's so sad. It was. So, you know, Ricky kind of threw himself back into his work, focused mm -hmm. on his valve business, and he, he kind of forgot about the box. And then fast forward to 2007, out of the blue, he gets a call from Dr. Mosier. And Mosier wanted to know if, like, you know, is now a good time to finish the project? And Mosier said, I really think that you guys are on to something with this box. And the timing actually, at that point, worked out for Ricky. Wait, what changed? Well, a couple of things had just sort of lined up. Um, Ricky had just sold a valve company he had started, and he was able to stick some of the money from that to fund a research and development project. Meanwhile, Mosier was doing a lot of consulting and R&D projects at the time for you know, a variety of companies and sort of using it as a retirement source of income. Um, really interesting stuff, a wide variety from forensics to agriculture. But he told Ricky that he was getting to the age where he kind of wanted a, you know, like a last big project before wrapping up his career. Wow. Mosher sounds so interesting. But yeah. um, was this was this Texas A&M? Were they still involved at this point? Well, no, um, he was retired. And so Mosher had actually donated all of his lab and equipment back to Texas A&M, you know, sort of as, as his legacy, mm -hmm. which, you know, I, I think cool. is a wonderful thing. Yeah. So Ricky basically paid to outfit a whole new lab for the express purpose of figuring this process out. So they rented an office space, they gutted it, and put in a fancy new lab and some offices. They named the company Presido, mm -hmm. and they started playing around with vodka. The, the initial project goal was pretty simple. It was most distillers that are making a, a high-quality vodka, they all start with basically the same product. It's a neutral grain spirit that is made from either corn or wheat or potato or whatever. And uh, once you get to that 190 proof grain neutral spirit, everyone has their own little twist of purifying it and making their own unique vodka. And uh, but 99% of them at the time were taking a grain neutral spirit and performing additional distillation steps and uh, filtration steps and then adding their own water to cut it to a certain proof and then they were bottling it. And the initial goal was to 
see if we could replace distillation and filtration with a technology that was uh, uh, very cost effective, number one, did not lose any alcohol in the process because distillation and filtration, they were losing 20 to 30% of their product depending on how long they distilled it. So could we replace that with a technology where you didn't lose any alcohol, uh, lower energy consumption, and make it fully automated to where you didn't have to babysit it all day long like distilling. So as they worked on this project, into the picture comes Greg George. Now, Greg, like Ben Mosier, had attended the University of Illinois, gotten his degree in chemistry, and had a career as an environmental scientist for the EPA and you know, like a big variety of uh, engineering consulting firms. Mm -hmm. He'd been all over the world working on environmental projects. But after that money dried up in the late 90s, he got a job as a metallurgist in the gas and oil industry, running a big industrial corporate lab doing metal testing. So one day out of the blue, again, out of the blue, Greg <laughs> gets this call from this Dr. Moser guy looking for services for one of his forensic failure analysis studies. Moser was working on a project where a cutting mill had exploded and injured someone. So here's Greg talking about it. Greg. And he asked, called me asking me about uh, what, how we might approach this. And I said, well, that's not really our thing. We do metals here, but I can connect you with part of the company that can talk about adhesive failures. And I said, what you really need is pyrolysis gas uh, chromatography mass spectrometry. And he said, well, how can you know about that? I said, well, in a former life, I did a lot of that sort of thing for EPA. We did a lot of pyrolysis work and here's part of our lab that we do it. We got to talking. And I frankly, to be honest, I didn't have time to talk to this guy. He sounded perfectly decrepit, to be honest, 80 plus years old. And he, he wanted to tell me his life story and being a service oriented guy, uh, I, I listened and tried to figure out what the customer's problem was. And uh, I really enjoyed talking to him because he was clearly a character just on the phone. <laughs> but uh, he says, well, you know, you seem to know a lot about GCMS. Where'd you go to school? I said, University of Illinois. But, you know, that was a long time ago. He says, I graduated from the University of Illinois. And, oh, that's an interesting coincidence. I said, when did you graduate, sir? Because you sounded kind of on the older side. 1957. So I'm doing the calculation in my head and thinking, wow, this guy has been around. And not really knowing what to say at that point, because we're generations apart from the school, I said, well, you must know uh, John Baylor, man, who was at that point, the, when I was there, the grand old man of the chemistry department, winner of the Priestley Medal. Uh, a, uh, he was the president of the American Chemical Society. But anyway, I had worked for Mosier, and we got talking, and and realized we had this shared experience of this guy. And uh, he says, you know, he was partly my graduate advisor then uh, in 1957. So anyway, he says, send me your resume. And I'm thinking, well, I just lost an hour here of analyzing steel samples. I'm going to be here late. So the next day I sent my resume. I did a little research on this guy. Well, it turned out he was an elite scientist with NASA credentials who had 50 patents and disclosures who run three laboratories in the city of Houston. This guy was a fireball. And <laughs> so about a, a week later, I think it was, uh, I met him at a coffee shop with Mr. Ford here. 
and they they hired me on the spot and I changed from a metallurgist into a beverage chemist. <laughs> so Dr. Mosier and Reg and Ricky and Ricky, I'm drinking too much here. Greg, Greg and Ricky, no. Greg and Ricky worked on this, and by 2013, they'd finally honed in on this process, whereby they could take, you know, a low-end vodka, and in 20 minutes, flip it into something you would sell. Then, by switching a few parameters, they figured out that it could work beyond grain-neutral spirits. This was a process that could be used across, you know, they realized a broad class of distilled spirits, including tequilas, rums, and other things. They could use this process to enhance the quality of the product. And then they had a big breakthrough. Here's Greg again. We had struggled trying to emulate and improve Mr. Ford Sr.'s system in the lab and really not making much progress on the alcohol loss issue. And uh, we're getting things off, but certainly none of the things that were high, tightly bound in solution and hydrogen bonded and co-distilling, we, we just weren't making progress. And one day I said, you know, I think the problem is we're saturating this thing with gas, but we're not getting all the gas out. And I remember that one of the things I used to have to do back at uh, the lab in Illinois is we would hit solvents with ultrasound in order to shake the gases out of them. When you do uh, liquid chromatography, if you don't degas the solution, you get bubbles in your detector as the uh, pressure goes down and you start losing gases out of the solution. So you have to degas with ultrasound. And Dr. Mosier, of course, he had every piece of equipment known to man in his uh, garage. Yeah. So he said, well, I got an ultrasonic generator and we'll bring that in tomorrow and fool around with it. And the first time, Paul, we hooked it up, we started getting components we could smell coming off the headspace that had never come out before. And the first time we ran it, we had we took an Everclear, which makes a god awful vodka, and produced something we could sit. So literally in five minutes, we solved a key process problem through an entirely an accident, wanting to do something else, which was simply to degas. Well, then I got to reading uh, about the side effects of ultrasound. One of the big problems that we had this uh, when I did groundwater research work we produced a lot of free radicals at this probe and we were doing this low level oxygen measurement in groundwater and kept getting contaminants when we degassed solvents with ultrasound and some literature review told us that the probe was actually producing hydroxyl radical and free radical species because the energies are so high that water molecules get torn apart and electron rich species get produced so I had written this paper on this effect and I recognized that something else was going on here because when we went to the GCMS, we were getting reaction products all of a sudden. We were getting changed compounds, which were not expected if it was simply a physiomechanical process. So to make a long story short, it was a lucky combination of the choice of ultrasound and then the fact that this probe was actually generating reactive radicals that cause reactions. I love stories like this. I've told you this before. We're <laughs> yeah. Sort of a happy accident is sometimes the thing you need to turn the corner on the development of a product or process. I mean, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, some great moments in history have happened that like that way, right? For but sure. now we get too much further into the, before we get too much further into the chemistry, I'm wondering if there aren't other things like 
like this that big distilleries have already come up with? Well, that's an excellent question, Amy. And and I honestly had the same thought. Yeah. But Ricky told me that there really just it, there hasn't been a lot of innovation in the distilled distilled spirits world. Um, there's a trend of doing this thing called rapid aging, and you know some people in the industry consider that term, you know, a dirty word, sort of cheating the system. Mm-hmm. Um, so what Procedo does is not say you know imparting wood character onto a distillate. They're simply cleaning up what's already there in already aged alcohol. They're making it better. They're polishing it or, or almost filtering it, if you will. Mm-hmm. Okay. Here's how Ricky looks at it. However, because we are another tool in the toolbox and we're not replacing, we're more of a partner to versus replacing the barrel. Uh, I look at our process as more of a just another tool in the toolbox to create a different taste and aroma profile. So, uh, you know, distillers today are locked down to just a handful of tools to create a distilled spirit. Um, and, and we just like to think of ourselves as just another tool in that mix, right? We're not saying use our process and you can, uh, cut six years off of your aging. No, sir. What we always tell distillers is that regardless of how long you leave it into the barrel, in the barrel, we are going to take that end product and we're going to enhance it regardless of the age. Now, some people will think about smoothness and equate that to an age. So if you taste something and it's smoother, you say, wow, that must be older. That must have been in the barrel much longer. Now, Greg tells me the system today has seven process parameters they have learned to modify. They can tune the process to the point where they're just focusing on things that are what they want to focus on. Thus, they simply adjust the parameters based on the specific type of liquor or the brand of liquor that they're polishing. Ricky and his team here have really taken this beyond the laboratory R&D phase and developed this artistry of tweaking the dials so that they can relate customer taste experiences to instrument settings. And that's where the intellectual property of the company really exists now. The patent is, is history at and, this point. Yeah, and I would, I would also add there that craft distillers want to own the craft product. They want to know that they've put the salt and the pepper in there and they've, they've got it where they want it. And because our technology is tunable, we have customers that we have tuned the process to create a flavor and aroma profile that fits their, uh, their wants and needs. And uh, so that's, it's, that's really, it is a shotgun approach but we do give that craft distiller some ownership in it. So they come here and they taste it and they like the mouthfeel. Well, I'd like to see a little less burn or you took out a little too much burn. I'd like a a little heat left in there. And we can do that. We can certainly do that. So I'd like to just say that it is a tunable process that we allow the craft distillers 
to own their recipe. Wow. Well, not only is this not pandemic related, it's <laughs> really fascinating. I mean, just I'm like the- myself a little more, Amy. Keep <laughs> <laughs> well, if, it, well, if anything, it's sort of a cure for pandemic-related stress, right? Yes, it is. <laughs> it's a nice balance between a really cool story and some much-needed alcohol. <laughs> it is. <laughs> All right. So I asked Greg to talk a little bit about the discovery process and how he sees it. Listen to this. Okay. My my philosophy has always been to hitch my wagon to a star. Um, I am at best uh, an average chemist but I'm an extremely persistent one. I may have a small bit of the family obsessive compulsive disorder. And I think most analytical chemists do to one extent or another. I don't give up on a particular approach until I've exhausted the, the possibilities of it. Um, the, the other thing is I, as we can have monster around here is I like to implement automation as early as possible in the R and D process. If you can't generate a whole lot of data, it takes, you know, the, the cost of generating data is very high. And it's frankly, it's fairly easy to analyze, but it's costly and time consuming to generate. So one of the things we did early on is beg Mr. Ford for high speed auto sampling equipment. We used technologies that could do 100 to 1000 times the analytical sensitivity of conventional GCMS by using pre-concentration methods that allowed us to look at a depth and range of conjugates. I mean, we're sometimes, Paul, looking at 500 analytes in a particular sample. And then we wrote, because I'm a pretty good programmer, we wrote automation software that could analyze these large data sets and generate conclusions very rapidly. So instead of getting the results of three samples a day, we could get 25 or 30. And that really helped to push the research process along. I don't like to work at things that are time consuming and just technician work. I like to automate those things to the extent that it can be done. So that's part of my philosophy. But the other thing is, you know, let's risk something. You know, let's fail. Uh, if you're if you're lucky enough to find a group of guys that are, have enough confidence in you that they're willing to let you blow it consistently, knowing that, you know, I, I joke with people, I have a lot of good ideas, a lot of bad ideas, and one good one. And, you know, you just got to be patient with me. Uh, but, yeah, we tried everything uh, to do this. We spent a lot of time working on fuel uh, additives uh, for the uh, uh, big uh, fuel industries and learned an awful lot, but made no progress whatsoever on cleaning these things up for reasons we came to understand. But Mr. Ford was willing to let us spend a year on that market to learn everything we could about it and determine that it wasn't our area of expertise. And the other thing is, uh, my other philosophy is let's be cost conscious. You know, I'm spending somebody else's money here. And I, as I, one of the compliments that I've gotten that I often remember is Ricky's said, I've been a good steward of the, the investors resources here. So we try to be very cost effective about how we approach problems and focus on 
doing the minimum things we need to do to answer the questions and not line our pockets as scientists. All right, Paul, we've joked a bit here about how different this winner is from the two that we profiled in the first two episodes. But the other thing I see is that, and correct me if I'm wrong here, I know you will, thank you. No. Um, this, is, this is a small, small company, not like a well-endowed national lab or research center like so many of the others oh. that, that we've looked at, yeah? You are absolutely right, Amy. Presido is actually a four-person company. Um, I asked Ricky and Greg about this, you know, it, and it's a little bit of a tough subject for them to talk about because here's the bad news. Dr. Mosier passed away in April of this year at 93 years old, right after they had decided to apply for the R&D 100 awards. But, you know, obviously before they found out that they'd won. Yeah. You know what? Um, that that's that is really sad. But I remember when you first started talking about this, Paul, I did a Google search and what came mm -hmm. up was. Um, an announcement on the Presido site about him passing away prior mm -hmm. to the awards. So, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a bummer. As my it is. It is. Well, yeah. well, here's Ricky and Greg talking about uh, okay. some of that. You know, I have to be yeah. candid and say that Dr. Mosier supplied the motivation and the passion, and I filled in the gaps. So. He came in, and this is no joke, he came into the lab every day feeling like we were going to accomplish great things. Yeah. And he, he communicated that nonstop. He dreamed out loud all day long about where this was going to go and what we were going to accomplish, almost yeah. to the point where I thought it was crazy the first week I worked for him. <laughs> But, you know, that rubs off on you. <laughs> and, you know, I kind of yeah. miss him. Uh, he was a pain in the ass to work for. Very demanding, sometimes cantankerous, but always faithful to the mission. Yeah. No doubt about it. And I think you need that kind of leadership because I couldn't supply that. I couldn't supply that. Without Ricky constantly believing and perhaps sometimes doubting our future and reaching for his wallet, and Dr. Mosher keep continuing to say, we're going to solve this, we're going to solve this, we're going to get there, that none of this would have happened. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, th I think you hit it, on the, hit it on, the, on the head. Dr. Mosher, that's the way he was. He was... He was always, he was going to go in and solve the world's problems. And one day I went in there and of course I left the day before we were working on vodka and I thought, wow, uh, maybe we'll get somewhere, you know, uh, and, and next week, next time I went in there, I said, well, how's that, uh, how's that, uh, the, the vodka samples turn out? He said, I don't know. He said, I've been looking at this for, uh, for dialysis. He said, I think we need to do a, that's right. A, a, <laughs> Yeah, we need a dialysis project, yeah. and I was like, "Wait a minute! I thought we were doing vodka. <laughs> now we're going to switch to blood." <laughs> I said, "Let's finish the vodka." He said, "Yeah, I think that's a good idea. Let's finish that vodka." <laughs> so he was—he was always looking for the next thing oh, yeah. that he could solve. Oh, yeah. You know. Yeah. So, um. I don't know. I still have quite a bit of my booze here. I think I'll uh, <laughs> I'll meter it out for the rest of the pandemic, perhaps. But what did you think? I mean, honestly, I 
that's that is the smoothest oh yeah oh ever. i'm still i'm still drinking mine here amy yeah well no oh. i i only poured a tiny little glass because you know it is like 1 30 in the afternoon here in california <laughs> it's it's, it's 4 30 eastern so i've got five o'clock within like my radar so <laughs> you know the one funny thing i thought about this uh and i'm trying to think of the character name uh from Breaking Bad, Greg, Greg almost reminded me of. Oh, is it not Jamie? What's the? Did you oh, ever see that show? So Walter White, the main guy, yeah. and his his assistant. I, I can't think of it now. I got to Google it. Oh, it's, um, I'm, I'm horrible with names, but they sound like <laughs> such interesting characters, you know. And Doctor Mosier in particular, um, I would have loved to have met him. Yeah, yeah. Oh, he sounds like he was such a just an amusing guy. Yeah, and yeah. I'm literally googling li lifetime here. Okay, well, I'm gonna, I'm just taking a sip of what I thought was my favorite, and it tastes really harsh. <laughs> <laughs> now, now that you know, you know, oh Jesse, Jess, Jess, so Jesse was, you know, the, the, the. Oh, okay, 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 yep. And you know, well, actually, I had never seen uh, Breaking Bad, but uh, that was one of our first pandemic things, right? We just streamed the whole five, I think five season, four or five season. Uh, Early in COVID, just as a way to get through it. And that was yeah. really interesting. Yeah. I'm a, big, I'm a big fan of Albuquerque too. So even uh, though it doesn't necessarily show the nicest side of Albuquerque. Yeah. <laughs> it was a good uh a good distraction from COVID world. It 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 sounds like it is well, I know. I've I've dived into breaking bad as well, but I I'm well, this was nervous. obviously, and, and to be clear, this was obviously a much more legal version of Breaking Bad. <laughs> in any way, okay. insinuating that what Christina did was, you know. Thanks for the disclaimer. <laughs> meth labs, right? Alcohol is legal, so, you know. Yeah, well, I, good thing, good thing, good stuff. All right, well, hey, I think that's probably about all we have for this episode because... <laughs> The more we drink, the more ridiculous this will get and you know, our jobs may be at stake. So at this point, I'm just going to say thank you for co-hosting with me. It is always uh, interesting to hear your perspective on these innovations, Amy. It, yeah, and it's great to to share in that research that you've done as well, Paul. Um, it's it's like story time for me, man. I love it. <laughs> hey. <laughs> um, hey, and to you listeners, if you're a past R&D 100 award winner and you have a super cool creation or development story to tell... Let's talk because we're listening. Please email us the details at researchdevelopment at wtwhmedia.com. Maybe we can line you up as the topic for a future R&D 100 podcast. And make sure to subscribe to the podcast and follow us on Twitter at eeworld underscore Amy, that's A-I-M-E-E, -E, and at wtwh underscore Paul Heaney. And that's P-A-U-L-H-E-N-E-Y. For the record, it is. <laughs> Until next time, this is Paul Heaney here. And Amy Kalnoskis over here. Signing off. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.